Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Okay, all right, today we're bringing our summer series to a close, the gospel according to Moses all summer long. We've been diving into the calling of Moses by God to go and confront Pharaoh, to tell him to let God's people go, let him go out of slavery in Egypt. And today what I want to do before we jump in, I want to remind us of something that we said on day one. Our purpose in studying Exodus or Moses or any of these stories is not, has not been to take a summer-long college, you know, Old Testament survey course like we're in seminary. That's important. It's important to, you know, learn the history and take those kind of things. And, and much of the research that I did for this series is uh, thanks to people who did do that, who studied hard the, the, the history of this story. But our purpose in studying the, this summer is to reveal the story of Jesus. I told you that on day one. We have been looking at the signs of Jesus in this story. The entire Exodus narrative points to Jesus. We don't study Old Testament stories just because they're historic. We study them because they're prophetic. They're prophetic, and they all preach Jesus. That is why we as Christians study these stories. And that's a beautiful thing. So when we become Christians, us, new, the New Testament church, we don't just throw out the Old Testament. Well, we don't need that anymore. We just study the New Testament. No, now we read the Old Testament with a Jesus bias. We read it with Jesus glasses on because now we see it all, what it's really pointing to. The, old, the, the, new Testament, the, the New Testament church, they understood this very well. The New Testament church, they, they knew that it was all pointing to Jesus, that's the thread running through all of the scriptures. They're preaching Jesus. The Apostle Paul, uh, when he would go and disciple those first Christians in the first century, you could just imagine us being, what if we were a first century church, right? Like Christianity just started. It's the year nothing or something like that, right? And, and here we are, and the Apostle Paul is coming to our church to, to disciple us, or he's writing us letters that we're getting to disciple us. These Old Testament scriptures, remember the Old Testament scriptures are the only ones they had, right? There's no New Testament for them to read from. They were, they were living it out. So they're reading the Old Testament scriptures. And so when they, when, they, when they preached about Jesus, they preached out of the Old Testament. That is what they looked to. That's how Christians read their scriptures. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying in, in the book of uh, Corinthians, when he's, 1 Corinthians, when he's talking to them, he teaches them how to use their Bibles to point to Jesus. When he writes in uh, chapter 10 about the story of the children of Israel leaving Egypt, he says this, these things happened to them as an example and were written as a warning for us to whom the end of time has come. They happened to them as an example, but they're a warning to us about the end of time coming. So he says in Jesus, what we see, everything we see in the Old Testament, it's pointing to Jesus. And these things happened as examples. So hopefully, for you and me, this summer has not just been an interesting historical lesson. Uh, hopefully, it hasn't just brought the story to life a little bit, although I hope it has. I hope it's been interesting and brought the story to life. But my prayer for you is that you have gotten to know Jesus on, in a deeper way. We want to know Jesus more clearly as we dive deeper into all of these stories that lead up to Jesus, okay? So today, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Exodus one more time, the book of Exodus, and we're going to be in, uh, we'll start in chapter 13. We're going to skim very uh, quickly through chapters 13, 14, and 15 this morning, 
Following the night of Passover that we talked about last week, uh, the Israelites are finally, after 400 years, they are free. 400 years. I'm just, we have to just try to put ourselves in that place. Imagine 400 years. If, like, if all of us in this room, we had been slaves since 1618, and suddenly we are free. So we're gonna, that's where we're at. We're going to dive in. Hallelujah. I'm still so sad about that horse. I'm trying to work through that, those horses. Chapter 13. Uh, in chapter 13, it's the, the, the story of their journey out of Egypt. And it's, it continues to be sort of intercut with these various instructions that God is giving them. And it's interesting. So it, it keeps breaking in the action to give uh, instructions that God is giving them. And, it, you know, it's, it's interesting the way this happens because it's not just an action movie. This is, this is a love story, too. Right? And so we're, what we're getting is the full uh, understanding of God's relationship with these people. So they're not just running out of Egypt with no instruction. He's leading them. We have to remember that these are slaves, 400 years slaves. And so they have no idea how to go on a road trip all by themselves. Pharaoh wouldn't even let them go out of town for the weekend when they asked him, you know, just let us go worship in the desert for a couple of days. He wouldn't let them do that. So they don't know how to go on a road trip. They much less be an independent nation all by themselves. And so God is leading them along the way. He continually, he teaches them about how to raise their children and how to teach their children about this moment that is happening right now in the years to come. Sorry, God's like, you guys, you guys think this is a big moment. You have no idea. They had no idea that what they were living through in that moment was truly the pivotal point in the history of Israel. This was a, a major moment. So God's guiding them. He's also guiding them into strange lands east of Egypt. Uh, he says that he appears as a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Another interesting thing is God intentionally takes them a longer route than he could have to the promised land. He could have gone a shorter route uh, it would have been through Philistine country. If you look at a map, you know, there's Egypt and Israel. They're sort of right next to each other, right? They're right there. They could have just went bloop right along the coast, Mediterranean Sea. You're in Israel. Uh, but instead, he takes them this long, circuitous route and because he, he says he knows that they're not ready. They're not ready to fight battles yet. They'd be more likely to run back to Egypt. We want to keep this point in mind. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. And then we come to chapter 14. And here's where God's special effects crew gets to work really hard for the money shot, right? The, the waters roll back. Uh, the Israelites arrive at the shores of the Red Sea, and, and our old friend Pharaoh has another change of heart, decides to go after him, as we saw in the clip there. He decides to go after the Hebrews and recapture them. In verse 10, it says, Pharaoh drew closer. The Israelites looked back and saw the Egyptians marching towards them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? That she took us away to die in the desert? These are delightful people. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt like this? Didn't we tell you the same thing in Egypt? Leave us alone. Let us work for the Egyptians. Actually, no. They never said that. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> they never said that. Uh, it, it's interesting. In, in panic and, and fear, this alternative memory making starts happening. The past was better, uh, right? I'm pretty sure we told you that. Just leave us there. This is a dumb idea. Actually, no, they were all very happy to leave, right? They were all like, yes, deliver us. And now they're like, why did you deliver us? It would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians than to die in the desert. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand your ground and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. 
And then Moses gets some more instructions from God. God says in verse 16, lift your shepherd's rod, stretch out your hand over the sea. Moses raises his staff, the water parts. They walk through, Pharaoh's army chases. And we read in verse 25 that God jams the wheels of the chariot and, and the Egyptians uh, start saying, let's get away from the Israelites because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The, the Egyptians have their moment of clarity in the very last moment. They have this literal a repentance realization. They want to turn, which is what repentance is. They want to turn around. Let's head a new way. Wait, Yahweh is real. It's all too true. They're, he's fighting against them. But it's too late. It's too late. God's judgment is undeterred at this point. This point, they've passed a sort of point of no return, and it raises some interesting questions for us too. And so the Lord, in verse 26, he tells Moses, stretch out your hand again, Moses, over the waters, and the waters come back together over the army, and they're all drowned, all the Egyptian army. And then chapter 15, we get to here. And the Israelites are safely on the other side of the Red Sea. The bodies of the Egyptian army are washing ashore. And the Israelites have a worship service, a worship and praise service like we can't even imagine. There's recorded here two victory songs, one uh, praising Yahweh, one sung by Moses. And then we find out that Miriam takes the lead in a celebration dance. Here in, in verse 20, it says, The prophet Miriam... Aaron's sister, it's also Moses' sister, took a tambourine in her hand. All the women followed her playing tambourines and dancing. Now, who's Miriam? Miriam is the older sister of Moses. She's the one that was down by the riverside when he was a baby in the basket. She's the one that, that guided him along, made sure he was okay. When the princess of Egypt comes and and uh, finds the basket. She comes and introduces herself and, and directs her to Moses' mother. She is responsible for helping to preserve the life of Moses. And here we just see another beautiful reflection of Jesus. God, throughout the scriptures, he partners with people. He partners with people to bring about his plan. He partners with Miriam to help ultimately bring about God's covenant with the Jewish people. And 1,500 years later, God partners with another woman to bring about the Messiah, a woman named Mary, which is the Hebrew form of Miriam, which in Hebrew is Miriam. Isn't that beautiful? The same name, same name. And this lady, Miriam, look at this. She's amazing. Remember, this is Moses' older sister. How old is Moses at this point? He's, scripture tells us he's 80. So Miriam is probably at least around 10 years older than that when he was born. And so she's got to be in her 90s at this point, and she is leading the dance, right? She is getting down. Miriam, this is super chick right here. I love this lady. Oh, I love Miriam. She is so cool. She is in her 90s leading the dance and, and the singing and rejoicing. I'd love to hang out with Miriam, I'm telling you. Well, that's a, a really quick overview of these three chapters here. I want to look at some, some takeaways that we can get from this text that'll challenge us today and then uh, offer a final thought to finish out this series. I want to start with a question. Do you remember how, how um, 
We read in, in chapter 13 just now that God purposefully took his children, not the shorter route, but the long way around to get to the promised land. And I want to ask this question, are we more obsessed with taking the shortest route possible or are we more obsessed with walking with God, to walking with God? And this isn't just a clever throwaway question. This is important. How obsessed are we with walking with God versus just taking the shortest route possible? It's fascinating to me because how often do we find ourselves in a wilderness situation, waiting for God to bring us into those greener pastures, to bring us to prosperity, and we're wondering, what on earth is taking so long? Anybody? What's taking so long, God? I mean, you would think, if getting these people to the promised land was the goal, is that the, is, if that's the goal, if that's God's only mission, well, just get us there the shortest way possible, or better yet, do some kind of really cool miracle and just disappear them here and reappear them in the promised land right? Let's get them there. Well, the reason, of course, in a nutshell, is because God is smarter than us, and God knew that getting Israel out of Egypt, that's the easy part, it would take years to get the Egypt out of Israel. Amen. He knew that. He knew that. You and me, getting saved is easy. Getting saved can happen like that. But getting free, that takes years sometimes. That takes, that takes growing in community with others, growing in relationship with others, and growing in our relationship with Jesus. Getting free doesn't always happen instantly. We can get saved. The Israelites were saved when they walked away from Egypt, from, from those gates. But it took a long time to get free inside. Scholars tell us that they could have made the whole trip in about, in about a week or two, uh, going the short route. But if you, if you look at that area on a map, it's not very far. It's not very far at all. But he chose to take them another way and lead them on this wandering route that lasted about two years before they first arrived at the border of the promised land. Why did he do that? Because God knows the shorter route is not always better. It's not always better. That's not the... I wasn't expecting you to shout and dance on that <laughs> nugget there. But sometimes we're not ready for that. God knew their hearts. He knew how fragile their psyches were. And he was right. I mean, he was right. After 400 years as slaves, and many times on the journey, if you, you know, you've read ahead in the story, you know, the Israelites want to turn around. They want to go back to Egypt. They've had enough. They encounter hardship. The first time they encounter hardship, they're like, why'd you bring us out here? We didn't want to come anyway. Right? They encounter hardship. They enc anytime they, they encounter uh, skepticism in their camp. A lot of them are skeptics. The heat, the sand, right? There's no water. Not to mention, they're being forced to depend on God for their very survival now. And that's exactly the sort of people that God wants. He wanted to turn them into people of faith and people of perseverance. He wants people who depend on God for their very survival but as horrible as Egypt was, we can't be too hard on the Israelites. As horrible as it was, it was safe. It was, you know, the devil you know. You've heard that phrase? Better than the devil you don't. It was safe in Egypt. They knew what to expect. 
And this is why we have to be growing in our faith. We always have to be growing. It's not enough for God to just rescue you one time a long time ago. That's not enough. You have to grow or you will run back to the comfort of slavery, the first hint of suffering. And that happens so often to us. We're walking with God, first hint of suffering, we run back to whatever comforts us, even if we know in our hearts it means slavery. But God doesn't want that for us. He's trying to grow us up into people who trust him. He's trying to grow us up into the image of Jesus. We're not always aware of what Jesus is, or what God is doing, right? We're not always aware of what he's doing on the inside of us. We're freaking, around, freaking out about what's happening around us. Because that's where most of our attention is most of the time. We're mostly worried about external things. I'm worried about this desert. I'm worried about, I don't see a stream of water right here. And God's, he's doing amazing miracles inside us. But all of our obsession is on the rocks and the sand, right? We want to hurry up. Let's get where we're going. God, get us where we're going. Come on. I, I, I'm, I understand, right? I, I pray that prayer weekly. God, get us where we're going. Come on, man. What, what are you waiting on? I understand. But God knows the shorter route is not always better for us because for God, here it is. Who you're becoming is infinitely more important to him than where you're going. Who you're becoming is more important to him than where you're going. Our goals for ourselves are, are often very upside down from God because we're obsessed on where we're going. We're obsessed on where we're going. He's obsessed on how we're growing. He's not as concerned about where we're going. That, and that, that seems to take up the bulk of our prayers, isn't it? Most, most of our prayers seem to be uh, the, the, what should I do now? Where should I go? Should I move here? Should I take this job? Should I buy this car? Should I buy that house? Should I, where should, I, should I marry this person? All this kind of stuff. And God's, he's busy answering different kinds of prayers. He is answering prayers that have to do with how you're growing, who you're growing into, right? The, who's the person he's growing you into? Jesus, right answer. Jesus, he's growing you into Jesus. That is his goal. His goal is not to grow you into just a version of yourself with more money. He's growing you into Jesus. Amen. And we're going, God, I like me the way I am. Just give me more money. <laughs> He's like, that's, no, no. He's growing us into Jesus. We say it over and over. That's why we come to church. It's why, why, why do I come to church? help each other become more like Jesus. We come to church to help each other become more like Jesus. I'm here today so you can help me become more like Jesus, and I'm here to help you become more like Jesus, not to get you more money, not to make you more comfortable. I want, it, I want you to become more like Jesus. That's what I need. I, that's the answer to all my problems. I know it. It's becoming more like Jesus. Tell me every, any problem you got, and I'll tell you, ultimately, we got to figure out how to become more like Jesus, don't we? That's, that's our solution. So when I look at this verse, he took him the long way. I can see God's hand in my own life so many times, so many times. His love and his guidance sometimes slowing me down from arriving at a destination so that I can, he can grow me more into the person that he wants me to be. And, and, I'm, still, and I'm still growing. 
I've still got wilderness areas in my life, right? He's, there's still places in my life where he's like, you need to cook a little more. <laughs> You're not done baking. And that's, that's good. Thank you, Jesus, for not just obeying all of my prayers. Amen. Answering your prayer is not the same as obeying your prayer. He's, he's answering prayers. He's not going to obey your prayers. Amen. Amen? He loves you too much for that. Wow. That was good. That's pretty good. <laughs> Write that for later. I'm going to tweak that. So we experience the long route in our lives. But the difference is, when we, as we grow, as we, as we learn to trust the Lord, the difference is, it's not that we have less long roots in our life, but now we know what he's doing. So we get to live with more joy. Right? You get to live with more joy. So now we, because we, we have peace. It's like, oh, God hasn't forgotten me. He didn't accidentally leave, leave me out here, you know, in the Sinai. Oh, he's up to something. I can trust him. Why aren't we there yet? Because God loves you too much to give, give you everything you want without helping you become more like Jesus. So rather than we rush things, rather than do that and trying to take control of our life away from God and, and possibly choke out what he's trying to do, what if we just learn to trust him more? Trust. That's, it's the everyday word for faith. Right? The Bible says, without faith we cannot please him. So it's not going out and doing lots of good things that's making him excited about you. It's when you put your trust in him. Faith is how we please the Lord. We have to exchange our, con- our control, our need for control for faith. And now... I want us to think about, let's, let's take a step back, not just in your own personal life, not just in my little personal life, my little, you know, us five and no more. Let's think about us as a church, because we're, we're a church family. What if God is doing that with us too, all the time? What if he is teaching us to exchange control for faith? He's constantly asking us to do that. Not just to leave behind the bondage of Egypt, but to also leave behind the safety and the predictability, the sense of control that we have in Egypt. Because Egypt is predictable, right? It stinks, right? It's grueling, but it's predictable. We know what tomorrow's going to be like in Egypt. We don't have to worry. But we have to give that up for the dangerous life of faith in the Sinai. That's what God is, I'm just telling you, that's what God wants to call you to a more dangerous life of faith in the Sinai. In between your Egypt and your promised land is a Sinai. In between is a Sinai. Jesus spent 40 days in a wilderness before he performed his first miracle. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness before they saw the walls of Jericho tumble down. I know you're special, and you shouldn't have to follow all these rules the way everybody else does in the Bible. But it just might be that we also have to spend some time cooking, learning to become like Jesus before those miracles start happening. Now, here's the cool part. In the Sinai, in the wilderness, you're going to see some of the most amazing miracles ever, right? You're going to see water come from rocks. You're going to see food fall from the sky. There's things that happen in the Sinai. It's not like he's leaving you there by yourself and you're destitute. He's meeting your needs. He doesn't want you suffering. He wants you trusting. That is what he's after. 
He's after us, trusting God. Amen. Amen. Second question I want to ask, I want to challenge us with. We saw the children of Israel. As soon as they ran into some hardship, what did they do? It was better back there. We told you. We told you we didn't want to come out here, which wasn't even true. Second question, are we letting discomfort distort our memory? Are you letting discomfort distort your memory? The children of Israel run into hardship, some anxiety. It's so interesting. They start reinventing their own history. They hadn't been away from Egypt for more than a day or two, I think, you know, as far as I could tell. It was better that we were slaves. We told you this was a bad idea. And, and this verse highlights a really important point about human tendency, and that is mythologizing our past when we're faced with uncomfortable situations. We mythologize the past. It's not just longing for a better day. It's mythologizing the past, idolizing some other place, some other time. When Israel becomes uh, uncomfortable or fearful, they romanticize their memories. They romanticize their memories. They're not even thinking clearly. They want to go backward rather than forward. And, and this is true in our culture. We tend to do this. This, is, this sounds familiar to me. We all do this. The grass is greener over there. We need to stop dreaming and start living in the here and now. It raises a, a challenge, I think, for all of us, and that is, are you failing to fully invest in the here and now? Where and when you are right now, are you, are you not investing because your energies are, are going into dreaming about some other time and place? This will set somebody free today if you'll if you'll let this sink in. Some people dream about uh, relationships. We dream about other relationships. Or a lot of single people, uh, you know, I'll talk to, they'll be, they'll be dreaming about the day they'll be married. They're dreaming about that. Or, and the, and, the, and the, the, the energy, it's not just a, a dream or a looking forward to, it's a kind of siphoning away of focus that they could be investing in the present instead of focusing on the present. They're, they're, it's siphoned away into some idealized future. One day I'm going to. One day I'm just, I'm just on the lookout for, and then it's really gonna, and then my life is gonna be so then, right? And Which means every time we're having those thoughts, uh, we're not fully engaged in the present. We're not right here. And when you do that, you drain away your ability to fully invest in the people that God has put right in front of you, the people all around you. You're not fully investing in them. You're not even fully investing in the opportunities that God has given you right here in the here and now. So if you're single here today, I'm just telling you guys, be fully single right now if that's what you are. Because right now is an important time. And it's not just the singles, right, who are, who are dreaming about some other situation. So some of you married folks, I don't want to step on any toes now. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of couples not fully investing all of your energy into your marriage because you're stuck in some private daydream of what your life could be. Oh, if you just married that other person, right? Or if we just did that, or if I was just in some other situation or something, I'd be better off. And when you're doing that, it's hard to be fully present. It, it's, it's impossible to give your best, to do your best work where you are in your marriage, in your relationship, when your dream is about, oh, this what if over here. We do that with relationships. 
We do it with situations. We do it with uh, this job, this job I'm in. Oh, if I was just in that job. Or this school I'm into. Or this course, this friendship, this church, right? If I was just at that, if our church was just, if we were just, maybe, you know, we just, it's all over there. And some of us do it with time frames. We romanticize uh, the past. If only it was like it was. Man, you remember when it was? It just wasn't as horrible as now. Remember when it was just so much more, right? And I got news for you. It was horrible back then too. <laughs> it, right? It, it's, the past was not so great. I, I, I'm going to step on somebody's toes, but I hear, some, I hear half my friends, you know, like mythologizing the same good old days when the other half of my friends wouldn't even be able to use the same water fountain that I used. Those were not good old days, right? It was, or it might just be a time in your own life when, when things were, were, were better, your memories of things seem better than the present. And I, and I promise you, you can mythologize the past. I know we all have fond memories of something in certain phases. We bond with certain times there were wonderful things that happened in the past. There were terrible things about the past as well. Just like today, there's wonderful things about the present. There's terrible things that, you know, need to be uh, addressed and changed. But we won't challenge or correct the things that are happening right now if we're stuck in the past, if we're not in the in fully present right now, right? The Israelites had an incredible opportunity to recognize what God was up to in that moment. They were living in the moment. And they were mythologizing a past. They weren't even remembering it clearly. It wasn't just that they missed the way it was. They were missing something that didn't exist. Right? right? So instead of dreaming about some alternate reality or romanticizing the past, let's be fully present. Let's be fully present here and now. That with the people that we're with, the people who are around you, the people God puts in front of you, the situation you're in, Right? That phrase, such a time as this. We were created for such a time as this. Don't bother wishing I wish I was in that time. No, you were in this. This is where you're at. And this is where you're at. Being the person that we are, this is the way that God changes the world through us. But we got to come back to the here and now. Praise God. Hallelujah. I want to I wrap up our series today. Uh, I want to bring us back to this single most important reason. I want to remind you one more time. The single most important reason why we study this story. The exodus of Israel, we see a picture here of the freedom and the salvation that Jesus has brought for you and me. It's such a beautiful picture. Just go back in your own quiet time, or you're sitting there with your cup of coffee, go back and start Exodus chapter 1. Just read and read with your Jesus glasses on. It'll just jump off the page at you. It's so beautiful. Exodus points us to the true Messiah. Today, you and I have the privilege of viewing this incredible story through the lens of Jesus. And as amazing as the miracles of, of Exodus are, oh man, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus takes us into a whole new covenant, doesn't he? Where he, he takes these miracles to a whole new level, right? Through the miracles Moses performs, we see God's wrath poured out. But in Jesus, we see blessing. Jesus brings blessing. Through Moses, we see judgment. Through Jesus, it's grace. His miracle of grace. Through Moses, we see harm brought to people. Through Jesus' healing. He doesn't inflict pain, right? Jesus heals. 
He receives the pain. He receives the torture that we deserved. Through Moses, water turns into blood. Jesus turns water into wine. The plagues bring about death. Jesus raises people from the dead. The signs and wonders of Moses. The signs and wonders of Moses were meant to to break Pharaoh down. Not the kind of signs and wonders we're praying for in our church, is it? (laughs) The miracles of Jesus, though, they lift us up. They make us whole. And this is why through Jesus we we get a full and complete picture of God. And here's the point I want to make. If we only read the Old Testament story, we might say, whew, is God having a bad day? Is, is he just really angry or something, right? Someone got on God's bad side. Is he upset? But now we know to look for the loving motive behind everything we read, everything that we read, even in the Old Testament, because we can see it in a way even the Hebrews couldn't see it. They didn't even understand because we get to know God most fully in Jesus. In Exodus chapter 33, later in the story, Moses has an, an encounter with God. And it says that he gets to see God face to face, but then if you read the story, he doesn't get to see God's face. God says, you can't handle my face. I'm going to show you where I just was. You can only see my back. So Moses doesn't even get to see the face of God, right? We look at that cross. That is the face of God. You want to know what is God really like? Look at the face of Jesus. It's not until Jesus comes He comes wearing flesh and blood. It's God in the flesh, walking in love, that we see this complete picture of the character of God. That's God. John says, no one has ever seen God. No one's ever seen God. That's a very strange thing. No one's ever seen God. I mean, look at the Old Testament. There's a lot of sightings of God, isn't there? There's a lot of God sightings. But ultimately, even the first century writers understood this. No one really saw God until Jesus came and made him known. Jesus makes God known in his fullness. And so we go back to the Old Testament. We do. It's it's a beautiful thing. We go back to the stories like this, but with a bias. We have a Jesus bias now, because we know the character of God. We we know God. we, We know how he is. We know this is the God of love. And so we read those old stories differently. So now we can ask, knowing that Jesus gives us the clear picture of who God is, well, what might God be doing in these plagues? What was he doing? What, what were the opportunities for repentance, actually, that was going on there? God's given opportunities for repentance all through there. And how was this an expression of love? And then we begin to see it. We begin to see it. And it's how we study scriptures as followers of Jesus. So I want to encourage you today, if you're sitting there thinking today, I think God's just angry with me, right? We just had this series with the Egyptians and the plagues and lots of blood and horses drowning. I think maybe, I think maybe I'm on the wrong side. I think God just wants to punish me too. Anybody ever feel like that? Like you're just on the wrong side of that ledger? And we look at that, maybe he's just mad at me. I would tell you, whenever that voice says that to you, go and stare into the face of Jesus. Stare into the face of Jesus for a moment and understand why God does what he does. Jesus will help us see that. Jesus helps us see 
that what, what God holds towards us isn't anger. It is an insatiable desire to reconcile. That is what God holds towards you. Love, reconciliation. What God holds towards you is forgiveness. Jesus meets people and he offers forgiveness to them, doesn't he? He comes up to people, the worst of the worst in their society, and he offers forgiveness. He meets people. He offers them a place in the kingdom. He says, follow me. He didn't say, get out of my way. He says, follow me. He, he, he offers them a chance to be God's sons and daughters. Jesus confronts the sinner. And he doesn't call down death from above. He offers forgiveness. He dies in the sinner's place. He forgives enemies. He tells stories about a God who, who, who forgives the prodigal son. The same prodigal son who spat in the father's face. And it's not, a, it's not a father who stands there with his arms crossed when that father, when that son comes running back. It's a father who throws everything down and runs towards him with forgiveness. That is the picture of God the Father that Jesus shows us. That is the picture. It's a God who isn't holding anything back. And faith is just trusting that it's true. Trusting that, that it's true. And saying, really, God, do you love me that much? You love me that much? And then you begin to see his love in everything. When you would step out, even in these stories, even in your current pain, the thing you're going through, you start to say, I trust God loves me. He loves me. And then you simply say, God, I want to get to know you. I trust that you want to forgive me. Faith is simply trusting that is true and then stepping out in obedience and surrender stepping out in obedience. So I want to pray for us today, all of us, that we would have the courage and the humility, because it takes some humility, to, to simply trust that this is true, that God really is the one Jesus reveals, and receive his forgiveness, and experience this beautiful reconciliation that he has to offer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your mercy that's new every morning. I thank you, Lord, that Jesus makes everything clear to us. That through Jesus, we get to stare into the face of God. I pray for those, Lord, who are feeling uh, distant from God, relationally out of sorts, relationally set apart in some way. There's just something between them and you that needs to be cleared out of the way. I pray, Lord, that every single person who's here like that, that they would have the faith to embrace your forgiveness. Knowing that even, even the act of embracing your mercy, your kindness, your love, when we do that, that blockage is removed, that thing standing between us, the sin is gone. I pray that today could be a day, Lord, for many people to be reunited the one who loves them the most. In the name of the resurrected Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about the podcast and other resources.